Okay? So this weekend we've been saying that Jesus is never without water. He's never without water. All throughout the Gospels, he's crossing rivers, he's crossing streams, he's crossing seas, he's changing water into wine. There's water everywhere. Last night we looked at the waters of baptism, right? We said that water tells us who we are. It gives us our bearings when life is disorienting. And then this morning, we saw that the waters are a picture of what it means to put out into the deep and follow Jesus in all the particulars of our lives. And tonight, I want us to look at the waters of chaos. The waters of chaos. I want us to look at what happens when everything in our life goes wrong. The waters of chaos. And two points tonight as we look at the waters of chaos. Point one, chaos. Point two, calm. Tonight our text, our passage, is going to be in Mark. It's the second gospel, Matthew, Mark. And we'll be in chapter 4, starting in verse 35. Mark 4, verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, And they woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we prayed last night, we pray again that you might speak to us. We're tired of listening to ourselves, we're tired of listening to the world, and we'd rather listen to you. So speak now through your word in your son's name. Amen. So point one, chaos. In 2015, the New York Times published this series of articles called The Outlaw Ocean. And these are amazing articles. I encourage you to Google them and read them because they're about the ocean and like how wild the ocean is. Like to this day, did you know that there are like thousands and thousands of pirates that still roam the seas of the ocean? Like the ocean is crazy. For example, the ocean is a place of lawlessness. According to the articles, an estimated 99% of the crimes that are committed at sea, things like murder, and kidnapping, slavery, and thievery go unprosecuted. Nothing happens. No one touches it. No one wants to deal with it. But there's also death on the sea. Every year, thousands of people die on the ocean under suspicious circumstances. But all the ships just move on, and no one is required to report the crimes. One former U.S. Coast Guard commander, he described the sea like this. He said, the sea is the Wild West. Weak rules, few sheriffs, lots of outlaws. The sea and the ocean might be, in many ways, the most chaotic realm still left in the globe. 
And if you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, the sea is chaotic there as well. The second verse in the Bible, Genesis 1-2, says that before God created the heavens and the earth, quote, the earth was without form or, and was void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So the Bible begins with chaos. The earth was without form. It's almost like, it's almost like this huge ball of, you know, this blob of Play-Doh that hasn't been shaped into anything. It's shapeless and it's disorderly. But it's also dark. Darkness was over the face of the deep. Do you see the similarities in our passage? Because first of all, in Mark 4, it's dark. It's evening, it says in verse 35. And then in Mark 4, it's certainly chaotic. Look at verse 35. When evening, the darkness had come, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go across to the other side. Let us go across to the other side. Here's what is happening geographically, okay? Geographically, Jesus and the disciples have gotten into a boat in the town of Capernaum. And Capernaum was their hometown. This is where Peter and all the disciples lived. And it was a familiar place. It's where they did all their fishing. It was a Jewish community. They were Jewish. Capernaum was their safe place. But the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the other side, that's where the Gentiles live. That's where the Gentiles lived. Not Jews, but Gentiles. And the Jews and Gentiles didn't like each other, right? The Gentiles didn't worship Yahweh. They didn't worship the Jewish gods. They didn't do the Jewish sacrifices. They didn't obey the Jewish rules. The Jews considered them dirty and unclean. So at best, the people on the other side are just different. But at worst, they might actually be hostile. And so this journey to the other side for the disciples is a journey from comfort to lack of control. It's a journey from the familiar to the unknown, to the unsafe, to the unexpected. So the boat is heading on a journey towards the unknown. It's dark outside. And if that wasn't enough, a storm arises. Verse 37, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. So much so that the disciples literally feel like they are going to die. Verse 39, What do they say? They say, we are perishing. We are going to die. We like to throw around that phrase, I'm dying. The disciples actually think they're dying. So, one, it's dark. Two, they're heading to cross the other side into the land of the unknown. Three, a storm has arisen. And if that was not enough, four, Jesus is asleep. The man that told them, let's get in the boat. The man they thought they could trust is in the stern, asleep on the cushion. A journey to a new land, dark, chaotic, waves crashing, waves filling, (coughs) drowning, dying, God asleep. I'm curious. Does this feel at all like college for you? Have you felt this way at any point in college, at any point in your life? 
because this is what college in many ways felt like for me. So I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, I was a really kind of high-achieving student. Uh, good job, Lily. You held your peace that time. It was great. <laughs> I was testing you. So I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and I was a high-achieving student in private school, good ACT scores, et cetera. And I said, I'm going to go to the best school I got get into, right? And so I got into Wake Forest. And so I went to Wake Forest, right? It's a good school, whatever. And I go to Wake Forest, and uh, I was there for a while. And after a while, I decided that I needed to go to a better school, so I transferred to Ole Miss. Okay? That's actually, a, that's actually a true story. It's a joke about a better school, but it is a true story. Okay? So I decided, for a number of reasons, I won't go into them, but for a number of reasons, I decided to transfer from Wake Forest to Ole Miss. And some of you are like, that is crazy. You went from a top 30 university to like a top 130 university. And the answer is yes. That's correct. Okay? Um, but almost immediately upon arriving in Oxford, things got very dark for me. I went into a really deep depression. Meanwhile, my friends that I left behind at Wake did not take my decision well. One guy wrote me a seven-page handwritten letter on why I'd ruined my life. Okay? And I read it, and I believed him. Because that's how I felt. I didn't really understand fully my decision either. I was really depressed. I started going to counseling for the first time. Like, I started sleeping all the time. I would wake up and go to class, but then immediately I would just come home and go to bed. At night, I started having these terrible dreams. Like, I started having night tears about spiders. Like, I started having dreams that, like, spiders were in bed with me, right? It was really dark, okay? And what made it even more difficult was sort of the weight and the expectations that I put upon college. Growing up, everyone always said to you, college is the best four years of your life, right? Go and live it up and enjoy it because it all, it's all downhill from there, right? And so here I am. It's supposed to be the four best years of my life. And I'm lying in bed depressed. I'm having dreams about spiders, okay? Like, I felt like I, I have people writing seven-page letters telling me I've screwed up my life, and I believe them. I was in the storm, okay? And I imagine for most of you, college has not been that hard. But for some of you, it has been hard. And one of the things I want to do tonight is actually give you the freedom and the honesty, like the, give you the freedom for college to actually be hard and to not feel this pressure for it to be like the end-all, be-all of human existence, okay? Because for some of you, it's been hard. For some of you, freshman year has been really hard. It's been really lonely. I mean, think about what happens in college. You go to the other side, right? Like you leave behind the comforts of home, the comforts of your church, your youth group, your family, whatever, and you journey into this strange land. You journey into the strange land where most people aren't Christians, right? You journey into the strange land where you used to be the smartest person in your class, and now like everyone is as smart as you, right? Like you journey into the strange land where everyone is as smart as you, they're better looking than you, they're, as high, they're higher achieving than you, and they do it all without looking like they even try, Right? And so some of you, maybe you started going to therapy for the first time. Some of you are really anxious. Some of you are depressed. You're on medication. Some of you are fighting addictions. Like, some of you can't stop looking at pornography, right? Like, for many of you, college actually is really dark and it's really chaotic. Okay? And maybe some of you can't relate to any of this at all. 
you're like, this dude is dark, right? <laughs> but let me tell you, let me tell you, at some point in college, or at some point soon after college, you will be in the storm. It will happen to you, okay? You will experience what Christians have called throughout the years the dark night of the soul. Your campus minister has experienced it in the last year with his brother dying. Like, this happens. The dark night of the soul, the storm, it happens. So if it hadn't happened to you yet, it will happen. And in that moment, here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to look around, and you're going to ask what the disciples ask. You're going to ask, like they do in verse 39, Jesus, do you not care? Do you not care that I'm dying? Do you not care that the dreams I had for my life have not come true? Do you not care about my friend or my relative, my parent who now has cancer? Do you not care? Do you not care? And in that moment, you will do anything for the chaos to stop. You'll do anything for the waves to die down, for it to be morning again and not dark outside, to see dry land again. You'll do anything to get out of the chaos. There's this band called Arcade Fire, and they have this song called Creature Comfort. And I think this song, perhaps more than any I've heard in the last five years, encapsulates sort of what it means to be in your 20s in America today. Okay? Here's what, it's, here's what it says. It says, Some boys hate themselves. They spend their lives resenting their fathers. Some girls hate their bodies. Stand in the mirror and wait for the feedback. Saying, God, make me famous. But if you can't, just make it painless. Just make it painless. Some girls hate themselves. Hide under the covers with sleeping pills. And some girls cut themselves. Stand in the mirror and wait for the feedback. Some boys get too much, too much love and too much touch. Some boys starve themselves, stand in the mirror and wait for the feedback, saying, God, make me famous, but if you can't, just make it painless. Just make it painless. And what they're seeing there is that all of us want to have a full and rich and significant life. But then the storm hits, and all we really want is relief. If you can't make me famous, just make it painless. Just make the chaos in my life stop. Point two, the calm. You'll see that the passage shifts, the tone of the passage, everything shifts in verse 39. Verse 39, and he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. Do you feel that? Do you feel that? And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. Darkness, chaos, a journey into the unknown, Jesus asleep, and then there's a great calm. Everything shifts. Calm. So the question is, the question all of us have in our life is how do I get calm? Like, how do I get peace? So I live in Austin, Texas, and Austin, Texas is a place that is sort of obsessed with peace. You know, it's kind of still a 
hippie and bohemian place where people like say peace to one another. And if you walk around, it's very clear that what people in Austin, Texas want more than anything else in their life is peace. They want peace. So that's why there's, you know, a yoga, store, a yoga studio on every corner. Because people, they walk in there and they believe, I can achieve peace through exercise and through meditation. And then, you know, across the street from the yoga studio, you have a Whole Foods. And you have people going in there to buy juices and, you know, to buy almond milk and gluten-free baked goods. Because they believe, like, I can find peace through diet, right? Like, Austin is the epicenter of what the author named Dave Zoll calls seculosity. Think about that word for a second. Seculosity. What Dave Zoll has done there is he's combined these two different words. He's combined the words secular and then religiosity. Seculosity. And what he's saying is that as people in America grow less and less religious, which is to say they don't go to church as much, they're actually still as religious as ever. Their religious impulses have not gone away. They're just not attaching them to church. They're attaching them to things like food and exercise and politics and technology and romance. These are our new secular religions. These are our seculosities. And if you look close enough with this grid, you'll see seculosity everywhere. You will see it everywhere at Wofford, these new attempts at finding peace amidst the storms of our life. But the irony of these new religions and these new seculosities that you see is that when you watch people chasing after them, you get the sense that people are literally dying in order to find peace. Or to put it another way, they're like running around in order to be still. And y'all, here's the problem. Here's the problem with all these new religions and all these new seculosities, all these worldly attempts at finding peace, is that they will wear you out. They will wear you out. Because outside of Christianity, the answer to chaos is always to run away from it. To just try and escape it. To run as far away as you can from chaos and from suffering. But Christianity actually says the exact opposite. Christianity says the answer to the chaos in our lives doesn't lie in some magical world beyond the chaos or away from the chaos. The answer lies actually right in the midst of the chaos. Because when Jesus comes to earth, the whole trajectory of his life is into chaos and into the storm. The whole trajectory of his life is not away from chaos, but towards it. The whole trajectory of his life is toward his own funeral. Because on the day that Jesus is crucified, what happens? Even though it's the middle of the day, the whole sky goes dark. It's as if it was evening. Becomes like Genesis 1. Becomes like Mark 4. The whole sky goes dark because Jesus is in the storm. He's in the storm of death. He's in the storm of sin. He's in the storm of Satan. And to make matters worse, in that very hour in which he looks at the world and says, I am dying, I am perishing, God is nowhere to be found. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you not care that I'm dying? Are you asleep? 
Jesus has entered the storm. He's entered the storm so that we, you and I, all of us, can actually be brought safely to the other side. So you can be brought safely to the other side of sin. So that you can be brought safely to the other side of death. Safe from Satan. Safe from storms. And safe from chaos forever. Outside of Christianity, the answer to chaos is to make yourself peaceful. Do you know the last words of Buddha before he died? Do you know what he said? He said, strive without ceasing. Strive without ceasing. Do whatever it takes to meditate. Do whatever you got to do to rise above suffering. But Christ's last words on the cross were, it is finished. Buddha, seculosity, self-help, say, if you want calm, it is up to you. And Christ says, it is up to me. Buddha says, look inside for peace. Christ says, look at me for peace. Buddha says, never stop striving, never stop running and trying. Christ says, stop. Peace. Be still. Buddha says, avoid pain. Rise above your suffering. Christ says, I've gone through pain and I've gone through suffering so that you can too and not die. So that's the good news of Christianity. That's it right there. But here's the hard news. The hard news is that between now and heaven, when all our suffering and chaos ends, things might actually get harder for us than easier. Because when you become a Christian, your life doesn't actually get easier, right? That's the great lie. In many ways, it actually gets harder. So what do you do between now and then? Let's think about some application. What you need to do between now and then as the storms of life hit you, is you need to get into the boat. You need to get into the boat. See, Christianity has this thing for boats. Like, think about it. In Genesis, God makes a boat for Noah and his family to escape the flood. And then in Exodus, Moses' mother makes this little boat for him, this little basket and floats him down the Nile so that he can escape death. In Acts, the Apostle Paul is nearly killed by a storm, but he reaches safely to shore through a boat. In the Gospels, 50 times in the Gospels, a boat is mentioned. 50 times. And this calls all the earliest Christians to wonder, what was the significance of the boat? What is the boat? And what they decided is that the boat is the church. That the boat is the church. That the church is like Noah's Ark in the flood. It's like Moses' basket in the Nile. The church is the boat that keeps you safe and warm and dry in the storms of life until we reach the other side. It's why if you look at pictures of ancient cathedrals, you know, in Rome or Paris or whatever it might be, they oftentimes look like upside-down boats. It's why in those ancient cathedrals, they had the big part of the cathedral called the nave, which comes from that Latin word for ship, because they understood that the church is what keeps you safe and warm and dry. It doesn't make you immune from the storms, but it keeps you safe in the midst of the storms. And y'all, 
Here's why the church matters. And here's why you need to go to church, okay? Because you cannot be a Christian on your own. Notice here, the disciples, like, it's not just like Peter and Jesus in the boat. There are a bunch of them in the boat. This boat is crowded. It's smelly. It's dirty. But they're all in there because they know you cannot survive on your own in this life. You can't do it. So don't try. Like, going into your room, having a quiet time, praying, by all means, continue to do that. But do not try and be a Christian on your own. Don't do it. Okay? And like many of you, like, you know this. Like, you know that you cannot survive college on your own. You cannot, you know that you cannot survive life in this world on your own. And that's why you love RUF, right? Like, that's why you love RUF. That's why you go to RUF on Tuesday nights, on Tuesday nights, right? Because, like, it is this refuge amidst the storm. But Matt will tell you and I will tell you that only going to RUF is not enough. Okay? RUF is a beautiful community, but it is not church. RUF is amazing, but it's not church. Here's why it isn't church. For one thing, there are things that happen at church that don't happen at RUF. Okay? At church, there's bread, and there's wine, and there's water. You don't have any of those things at RUF. At church, you have old people. That reminds you that you're going to die. You have young people who remind you that like what it means to be a Christian is actually to become like a child. At RUF you have college students and that is wonderful. But at church you have everyone. You have handicapped people, you have old people, you have people who make you uncomfortable, you have people who do not look like you, you have babies, you have everyone. Second reason, second difference is that RUF, as amazing as it is, it will end. Like one day, no one in this room will, will be at Wofford College anymore, right? And you will all be out in different points of the world. Some of y'all are like crying, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but, but it's true, okay? But you know what will be there? Whether you move to Asheville or Charleston or Austin or Portland, or New York, or L.A., or San Francisco, or any of it, you know what will be in those places is the church. The church will be there. It will be there. It is not going anywhere. Okay? So if you want to survive the storms of life, you have to get in the boat. you got to go to church. Do RUF, but also do church. Okay? All right. So as we close tonight, here's what I want to ask you. I want to ask you to consider... Where do you go when everything in your life goes wrong? What thing or what person do you look to in your life to say to you, peace, be still? Because the temptation, especially in college, is when one area of your life is in chaos, to just go and try and manage another part of your life. So if your grades are not where you want them to be, you run to relationships. You run to sex, you run to parties, whatever it might be. When, when your relationships are in chaos, when you've had a breakup, you run to grades. And you say, if I can just perform and manage, at least this is an area of life I can control. All of us have something in our lives that we look to to say to us, peace, be still. 
Friends, I pray that you will let the person that says to you, peace, be still, be Jesus. Because he is with you in the storm. Those other things, when the storm comes, they're going to cut and run. They can't handle it. It's too dark. It's too chaotic. But Jesus can handle it. Jesus is in the boat with you in the storms. And if you want to know where to find him in the storms... You can find them right here. You can find them in the bread and the wine at church. You can find them in one another. He's with you. He's in the boat. Mark 4.39 And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Alright, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father,